Moses has been told by God that he and Aaron will not enter the promised land. What his mental state must be knowing that he must continue to lead the ungrateful rabble of Israelites through the desert for the next four decades is never discussed. But what happens next is an absolute hammer blow. The question is, will it crush Moses' already weakened morale, or will he and his people rally, take adversity on the chin, and push on into the unknown? My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 39, The Wizard. Welcome back to this, the slowest journey through the Bible on the internet, possibly. We're in no rush. Sometimes it's nice to take in the scenery. I see you as Bible travellers rather than Bible tourists, and you already have a greater knowledge of the early books of the Bible than most Christians, assuming that you're not a believer, that is. I like to think of this podcast as a safe space for people who aren't especially religious and who don't want anything pushed down their throats. Some of you have had a little too much of it in your lifetime already, which is possibly why you're not big fans of religion. So, here we are. I refer to Zondervan's NIV UK Study Bible and throw in bits of learned wisdom from others and a few opinions of my own. You'll see. At the moment, we're with the Israelites, who are going round the nation of Edom rather than through it, as the Edomites see them as a potential threat, which could easily overwhelm them and their people. It's an easy assumption, but Edom was founded by Esau, twin brother of Jacob, the founder of Israel. As such, the Israelites see themselves as family and feel that a bit of give and take was in order rather than a hard no. And from this point on, Edom is filed under enemies of Israel. Here goes. Unable to enter Edom, the Israelite camp moves to a mountain on the border of the Forbidden Land. The Book of Numbers names the Israelites' border location as Mount Hor. And, as with many stops on the Israelites' wanderings, the exact coordinates of the mountain are anyone's guess. Once they reach Hor, God explains to Moses and Aaron that this is where Aaron will die, adding that this is punishment for the brothers' loss of cool back at Meribah. Aaron, his son Eleazar and Moses are to climb the mountain where Aaron is to take off his priestly regalia and place it on his son, who will now assume the role of Israel's high priest. As the whole of Israel watches, the three men climb the mountain, the garments are placed on Eleazar and Aaron dies. How he dies is not explained, nor does the Bible record how Moses feels at suddenly being dispossessed of his beloved brother and trusted wingman, especially as it comes so soon after the death of his sister. Unlike the episode where Aaron is forbidden to grieve his disobedient older sons, the whole Israelite community mourns for 30 days, able to see past their general frustration and boredom that Aaron was a good man and that his loss as Israel's spiritual leader is a significant one. It's also a clear sign to the masses that no one, not even their high priest, is above the law. The 30 days mourning is still observed by Jews today and is known as Shloshim. No sooner has Moses come down from the mountain than the king of nearby Arad attacks. He has heard that a gigantic foreign force is coming his way and isn't prepared to take any chances. 
His army captures some of the Israelites and Israel's leadership vows to God that they will attack and destroy every city in Arad if they can be assured that he will make their offensive a success. According to the book, God helps the Israelites win an emphatic victory. Arad is annihilated and the site of the battle is given the name Horma, which translates as destruction. Finally, after so much quarrelling, bickering and a genuine attempt at a coup, this is good news. It's a satisfying conquest and proof to the disgruntled, disaffected and superstitious mass of people that God really might be on their side and that Moses really is their best bet for a ticket out of here. And so, flushed with victory and possibly a new sense of self-belief, the Israelites continue their tedious, plodding detour around Edom. The Israelites backtrack towards the Red Sea in order to circumnavigate Edom. Whether this is the actual Red Sea that can be found on modern maps, or yet another transitory stopping place that could simply mean Sea of Reeds, is uncertain. There is no bread and no water, the Israelites moan, clearly sick of their ongoing diet of manna. We detest this miserable food, they cry out to Moses. God's response is to send poisonous snakes to terrorise the camp, and many Israelites are bitten and die as a result. The rest mob Moses, begging him to ask God to intervene and to let him know how sorry they are for complaining. God's antidote to the poison is an unusual one. He commands Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze and to attach it to a pole. Everyone who looks at this totem is healed from their snake bite, and once the dust has settled, the camp moves slowly on towards Moab. From hospital insignia to pharmaceutical packaging, the snake on a pole remains a popular logo in the medical field and has its origins in this story. The Book of Numbers chronicles no less than eight movements of the Israelite camp as it navigates around Edom. The writer clearly has access to an existing account of the Israelites' conquests as they march towards Canaan and names this source as the Book of the Wars of the Lord. This book identifies one of the camping locations recognisable by its slopes and ravines as Arnon, a town that has long since disappeared from history. When they reach an oasis called Beer, which, perhaps disappointingly for modern readers, doesn't dispense ale and pilsner, Moses is told to gather the masses and hand out fresh water. It appears that wells need to be dug and that this work is carried out by the elders of Israel. Such manual labour seems unlikely given the mass of available workers on hand, and it may be that the men strike the ground symbolically with their staffs and God provides a geezer of fresh water just as he is credited with doing at Meribah. At this point, the desert wanderings suddenly segue into Wilderness, the musical, as the overjoyed Israelites burst into song at what they have just witnessed. The entourage then moves on before settling in a valley in Moabite territory that isn't even given a name, though a nearby mountain, Pisgah, translates unhelpfully as summit. This absence of identifiable locations is frustrating for Bible purists who crave tangible evidence that proves the historical veracity of the biblical account. 
Despite numerous attempts to find traces of the Israelites' 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, none have met with success, and there is as yet no direct archaeological evidence for the exodus. As they approach territory that is ruled by an Amorite king called Sihon, Moses sends messengers to him, asking if his people can be given safe passage. The envoys carry the same message they took to Edom's king. They simply want to travel along the king's highway and will neither be marching through any agricultural land nor taking water from any wells. It's not unsurprising that the king doesn't want two million or so Israelites anywhere near his country, especially if the mood turns volatile, and so he refuses to let them pass. Instead, he gathers his entire army and sets out into the desert to fight. In hindsight, launching an attack on a vast group of people which appears to have divine protection is unwise. But Sihon doesn't have hindsight, just a few men with swords. Unfortunately for him, the day ends with him losing his entire kingdom. Israel captures all Sihon's cities up to the border with the nation of Ammon, which is heavily fortified. Sihon's capital Heshbon is captured, and readers are told that this is all land that Sihon has seized from Moab. The writer graphs in a piece of pre-existing poetry to add colour to the conquest. The poem calls for people to come to Heshbon and rebuild it after it was destroyed by an inferno, no doubt the one caused by Israel's attack. According to the poet, the fire reached as far as Arnon and all its people burned. Moab is also told to lament. It has already lost the city, its sons and its daughters to Sihon. But Israel has overcome them, the poet crows. Heshbon's dominion has been destroyed, he writes. Sihon's power has been demolished. Israel makes itself at home in what used to be Sihon's kingdom, but eventually it's time to move on. Moses sends out spies to the city of Jazer, another unidentifiable wilderness settlement, and uses the intel to capture the towns all around it and drive out the Amorites who live here. As the Israelites march on, they come upon the territory of Bashan, which is ruled by a king named Og. Og either hasn't heard what happened to Sihon, or he thinks that his own army has more muscle, and so he marches out to fight the Israelites. According to Jewish legend, Og is a giant, but God assures Moses that the people need be no more afraid of him than Sihon. They just need to meet him in battle, which is guaranteed to go Israel's way. Sure enough, Israel wipes out Og, his sons and their entire army, and takes ownership of Bashan. The Israelites have reached the borders of Moab, a nation which can trace its history back to a drunken night of incestuous near-rape in a cave above the ruins of Sodom. Here, Lot's two daughters get their father drunk, sleep with him and later bear sons, Moab and Ammon. For the juicy details, head back to episode 5, Fire from the Sky. Both Moab and Ammon pose a near-constant threat to Israel for much of the Old Testament. It's not all enmity and war, though. A widow from Moab named Ruth marries into an Israelite family and becomes great-grandmother to Israel's greatest king, David. But all that is a long time in the future. Back in the book of Numbers, things are considerably more hostile. The Israelites have moved their camp to flat country near the River Jordan, opposite Jericho, two geographical places that can actually still be seen on today's maps. 
Having seen how effortlessly Israel dispatched the Amorites, the locals are understandably wary at having such unpredictable guests so close to home. Seeking strength in numbers and filled with what the Bible describes as terror and dread, Moab's king Balak sends an urgent message to the kingdom of Midian, which lies south of Edom on the northwest edge of the Arabian Peninsula. The messengers from Moab are to tell Midian's leaders that Israel is about to lick up every nation in the region as an ox licks up grass. Balak then takes matters into his own hands and sends for a sorcerer named Balaam, who lives to the east in the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, known to the Bible as Mesopotamia. The hope is that Balaam can put a special curse on Israel in exchange for money. The king's message to Balaam is that a people who cover the face of the land has come out of Egypt and settled right on his border. Balak appears to have huge confidence in Balaam's special powers and that whatever the man blesses or curses will be blessed or cursed. Leaders from Moab and Midian take the invitation and some cash to pay for Balaam's services and share the king's message with the sorcerer. Balaam asks for time to hear back from God and tells the men to stay the night. Given that he is not from Israel and doesn't worship God, there is no reason why Balaam should expect to hear from him, so it is perhaps the lure of money that makes him go through the motions anyway. Given that God is seen as the all-powerful deity in the Bible, the assumption has to be that he knows exactly what mischief is being made by Moab and Midian, and his question to Balaam is more of a, what are you up to? Balaam explains the men's request to put a curse on Israel and, unsurprisingly, God tells him to cease and desist and to certainly not go with them back west. The Israelites are blessed, he says, so Balaam must not curse them. The next morning, Balaam shares the bad news. God says no and this particular party is not going to happen. The envoys take the news back to Balak, who, rather than give up, simply assumes that his representatives weren't impressive enough and sends a much more distinguished delegation with a money-no-object promise to Balaam. The sorcerer is honest at first. He tells the men that even if he were to receive all the silver and gold in Balak's palace, he can achieve nothing that goes against God's wishes. As a gun for hire, Balaam is no doubt sorely tempted by the offer, it's then that he proves himself to be a skilled con artist. His no may have sounded like a no, but he offers hope to the envoys, telling them to remain overnight in case God has any builds on his earlier position. Surprisingly, God shows up again. He tells Balaam to go with the men, but to only follow his divine instructions. Regardless of how this pseudo-prophet normally operates, freestyling is not an option. The following morning, Balaam saddles up his trusted donkey to set off on his mission, but God's plans to derail the enterprise allows for one of the most comical interludes in the Bible. As Balaam prepares to follow the envoys back to Moab, the book describes how God is furious with him. The sense is that he should have waited for the envoys to come to him, pleading with him to return with them to Moab, yet the suggestion is that Balaam is only too keen to tag along. His lust for wealth and reward is transparent, and this is what makes God so angry. 
Balaam is travelling with his two servants, but before the men get very far, readers are told that the angel of the Lord stands in the road, holding up a sword and blocking their way. Keen to avoid confrontation and clearly spooked, Balaam's donkey diverts into a nearby field. Balaam then beats the animal to get it back on the road again. As the entourage passes along a narrow path through a vineyard with walls on either side, the angel appears again. Terrified, the donkey tries to flatten itself against one of the walls to let the angel pass, crushing Balaam's foot. Again, Balaam beats the animal and they all move on. Finally, the angel appears in a narrow place where there is nowhere to pass. Cornered and clearly unable to reverse, the donkey simply lies down under Balaam, who cannot see the angel and must be wondering what on earth is causing the beast to be so obstructive. Balaam whacks his donkey yet again, and for the first time since the serpent tempts Eve in the Garden of Eden, a biblical animal speaks. According to the book, it is God who allows the animal to talk. What have I done to make you beat me three times? it asks. Seemingly unfazed that his donkey is now talking to him, Balaam vents his fury, telling it that if he had a sword, he would kill it for making such a fool of him. The donkey then attempts to add a little context. Balaam knows that he is a dependable animal who has been with him for a long time and asks if it makes a habit of disobeying instructions. Balaam has to concede that it doesn't. Which begs the question, can a donkey talk, or for that matter, a serpent? Can a fish swallow a man, and can a boat filled with animals survive a year afloat? The early pages of the Bible are filled with stories that seem fantastical. Some have no issue with believing them utterly. Others assume that the Bible's writers are creating their own reality. It's true, a God as powerful as God ought to be able to do whatever the heck he wants, even if that involves putting words into the mouths of beasts. And if he doesn't do these things, is his message any less valid? For many, the Bible's words are absolutes, Gospel is gospel. For many others, it's a case of not letting the little picture ruin the big picture. And so, Balaam's donkey talks to him. At this point, the book describes how Balaam's eyes open so that he too can see the angel holding a sword. Clearly awed by the presence of a godly messenger, he makes a low bow, then falls face down on the ground. The angel appears to be an incarnation of God and asks Balaam why he beat his donkey when it refused to move. The angel adds that Balaam's journey is a reckless one and that if the donkey hadn't taken evasive action, he would have killed him and spared his animal. Now face to face with God, Balaam is immediately contrite. He reiterates that he didn't see the angel, but admits that he has sinned and that he is more than happy to return home if his actions have caused offence. However, the angel's instructions are for Balaam to continue on to Moab, but he is only to speak when he is told to. Balak hurries out to meet Balaam at the border of Moab that is closest to where the sorcerer lives, either to show him respect or because he is worried that he is running out of time. The king is exasperated that Balaam took so long to finally show up and assumes that his guest has no faith in his ability to reward him. 
Balam is honest. He can't simply do what Balak wants, he says. He can only say what God tells him to say. Balak appears confident that money will do the talking. Balaam did make the journey after all. After sacrificing cattle and sheep, the king gives plenty to his guest and to the dignitaries who have brought him here. Again, Balaam is conflicted. He is under divine instructions, yet he has just enjoyed food from a pagan sacrifice and readers are beginning to see that Balaam is simply an opportunistic free agent and a lover of freebies. Terrified of the threat from Israel, Moab has enlisted a sorcerer to try and rain curses down on their enemy. Will Balaam be able to counter the will of God? Will the dark side prevail? And if Balaam fails, what else does the king of Moab have in his toolbox? There is nothing he will not try in order to protect his nation, and he does have a secret weapon up his sleeve something more powerful than any wizard or any spells he can weave. The king of Moab doesn't need magic to ruin Israel. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also leave feedback or comments via social media. Simply search Holy Bible on Twitter or Facebook. See you next time.